friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, we're sharing an episode from our companion podcast live at the National Constitution Center. That's the live feed for our great town hall programs. In this episode, three leading presidential historians warn us about the increasingly demagogic nature of the American presidency. Sidney Milkus, Barbara Perry, and Stephen Knott take us on a historical journey that traces the progression from George Washington, who governed as a neutral and unifying national leader, to contemporary presidents who fan populist passions. They also offer solutions about how to restore the framers' vision of the constitutional presidency today. Enjoy the show. Friends, I'm so excited to convene this evening's panel. We have three of America's greatest presidential historians and also historians of the constitutional history of the presidency to illuminate us. They all have incredibly um, wonderful new books that can cast light both on our current vexations and also on their historical roots. And I, I'm, I'm so honored to convene them to, to share their light and wisdom with you. Uh, Stephen Knott is Thomas and Mabel Guy, Professor of American History and Government at Ashland University and an Emeritus Professor of National Security at the United States War College. He's author of 10 books on the American presidency, including uh, most recently Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy and the, a book we'll be focusing on this evening, The Superb, The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, The Decline into Demagoguery and the Prospects for Renewal. Sidney Milkis is White Burkett Miller Professor of Governance and Foreign Affairs and Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, uh, one of America's leading presidential historians. He's the author of pathbreaking books, including the textbook, The American Presidency, Origins and Development, and uh, most recently, the invaluable What Happened to the Vital Center, Presidentialism, Populist Revolt, and the Fracturing of America. And Barbara Perry is Gerald L. Bailey's professor in presidential studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, where she co-directs the presidential oral history program. She's written or edited 17 books on presidents, first ladies, the Kennedy family, the Supreme Court, civil rights, and civil liberties thing of cast so much light, and they're um, just uh, uh, check them out. And her most recent book, which is also just so timely and so helpful, is The Presidency Facing Constitutional Crossroads. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephen Knott, Sidney Milkus, and Barbara Perry. Stephen Knott, your new book, The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, The Decline into Demagoguery and the Prospects of Renewal, poses a thesis that I'd love to begin with. And you argue that uh, the conception of the presidency embraced by George Washington and Alexander Hamilton was a constitutional presidency, vigorous but constrained, and designed to resist majoritarian and populist pressers to avoid the dangers of demagogues. And you argued that that constitutionalist presidency was challenged during the founding by Jefferson, who had a far more majoritarian conception of the presidency. And that Jeffersonian conception was extended by Andrew Jackson and then uh, used to transform the presidency by Woodrow Wilson and has led to the populism and demagoguery that we see today. Tell us more about your magnificent thesis. 
Well, thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Yeah, I've argued that the constitutional presidency, as I've called it, that was put forward by Washington, by Hamilton, and even James Madison. Madison had disagreements with Washington and Hamilton, but I don't think over the nature of the presidency. All of those men were deeply concerned about the dangers of the tyranny of the majority, and they viewed the president as a potential check on that majoritarian tyranny. And they put significant emphasis on the president's responsibility to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And that may mean that the president has to resist uh, majoritarian impulse targeted at various unpopular minorities, whether those minorities be political, racial, economic, whatever. That all changes, Jeff, as you mentioned, uh, with Thomas Jefferson, who begins to sort of, I would argue, refound the American presidency and argue that the president is, is, in a sense, a spokesman for the majority and that he derives his powers from the electoral mandate that he receives. And that Andrew Jackson, as you mentioned, sort of blows the doors wide open by explicitly arguing that the president is the tribune of the people and that the majority is to govern, as Jackson uh, put it in one of his State of the Union messages. Now, those two are kind of the exceptions for 19th century presidents, but they do, I think, serve as role models for some of the later progressives, beginning with T.R. and Woodrow Wilson, who share a more activist view of the federal government than either Jackson or Jefferson. But they do believe that the Jackson and Jeffersonian conception of the president as a spokesman for the majority, as the one nationally elected figure who can see the entirety of the American political order, they embrace that with vigor. And that's the presidency that you and I are living with today. Thank you so much for uh, setting out the thesis so well. Well, uh, Sidney Milkis, in your uh, book, The Vital Center, in your in your essay in the, the recent collection on the presidency, you've noted, of course, that um, some degree of uh, popular mandate has been necessary for the most successful presidents, including uh, inc- including Abraham Lincoln, and that a complete insulation from public opinion was not realistic. Are are there any um, thoughts you'd like to share about uh, Stephen Knotts's thesis as it it relates to 19th century presidency? And and how did Lincoln both channel and revise the uh, presidency imagined by Washington and Hamilton? Great to be here, Jeff, and great to be here with uh, Steve and Barbara, um, two of my great friends. Um, I I, I do think uh, the original Constitution, the idea uh, uh, that Steve just laid out so well, where the president sort of stands above uh, the um, the conflicts of um, of democracy and moderates them, uh, almost like an elected, um, almost like a constitutional monarch in a way. Um, it's interesting the, the original electoral college; each elector cast two votes for president, and so you couldn't have a party ticket, um, which you know the kind of ticket that might connect and appeal to public opinion. Um, the, uh, the first, the one who, the candidate who got the most votes would become president. The candidate got the second most votes would become vice president. And so that's what happened with Washington and Adams. Deliciously in 1896, when parties began to, to, to develop, uh, John Adams was uh, elected president and Thomas Jefferson, who was developing as his political opponent, 
uh, was selected as uh, the, was elected as vice president, and that must have been a, a, a must have been fun to behold the the executive mansion during that time and the conversations that, that took place. So I think what um, really changes things, and this kind of develops with the Jacksonian and uh, the Jeffersonian and Jacksonian presidencies, is, is the development of a mass party system. Uh, that it's impossible to understand the accomplishments, I think, of Jefferson and Jackson without the development of that. And that did um, uh, sort of connect the presidency to public opinion. But the party organizations also imposed some constraints on this popularized uh, presidency that Steve says, you know, develops over uh, in the 19th century with Jefferson uh, and, and Jackson, because the party system that develops is highly decentralized and it's based rooted in the patronage and spoil system. Uh, and so both parties sort of develop as uh, sort of uh, as develop as, as um, but they buttress local and state governments. Uh, and they, um, given that they're interested in patronage, uh, there's a kind of pragmatism uh, to the party system. And, and particularly with Jackson, the party system is developed in a way to constrain him because, as Steve said, he's potentially the, the Napoleon uh, of America. Um, and the Democratic Party, as it develops, is highly decentralized uh, and it's... Um, and its power is really rooted in, in state and local party leaders. Uh, and they kind of impose a kind of collective responsibility on the presidency. As Van, Martin Van Buren, who's one of the great architects of that Democratic Party, puts it, uh, the party system helps transform personal preferences into, um, into party principle. And the party principles of the Democratic Party, which develops over Jefferson and Jackson, are dedicated to limited government, natural rights, which precede um, politics and therefore constrain politics. So um, that takes us to Lincoln. I'll just be brief on Lincoln because I don't <laughs> I'm gonna let my colleague Barbara in. Um, with, with Lincoln, I think you, and, and, this, and this incredible crisis uh, that almost ended the union, you know, this, this tremendous, uh, this re- domestic rebellion, full-scale domestic rebellion, um, and civil war, uh, and again, the battle to, uh, for emancipation, uh, Lincoln uh, challenges the notion, I think, uh, of limited government and argues that the government has to make a, a, a play a more positive role, um, and uh, particularly with respect to the problem of, of slavery, which he argues is a denigration of the Declaration of Independence and the real end of the of uh, the real founding of America's in 1776 with the Declaration, not in 1787 when we found this Constitution. So the Constitution must be adopted um, uh, to to practically as possible um, um, bring uh, the country uh, um, uh, more towards the. Um, fulfillment promised by the Declaration of Independence. Every individual has the right of life, uh, liberty, uh, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and that uh, idea that the that the founding is the Declaration and those rights must be uh, 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 pursued in a transcendent uh, trans in a transcendent fashion uh, leads to uh, uh, Lincoln's argument that. Uh, the, the government has the responsibility um, 
to uh, provide for what he calls a fair race of life. And the first thing the government has to do is, is get rid of this, this, um, heart, this institution of slavery, which is a black mark on the Declaration of Independence. And I think that's a really important part of Steve's story um, in the development of a, of a democratic president, because it's true that turning the presidency on the constitutional presidency on its head and making it the, uh, the tribune of the people adds to its, infuses its power. Uh, but when, when Lincoln transforms the idea of limited government into this notion that the government has an, a more re- affirmative responsibility, I think that has an, that's an important bridge to the progressive presidents that Steve mentions. That is a, such an interesting way of putting it, of, of showing the mix of Hamiltonian means for Jeffersonian ends, as Herbert Crowley talked about the progressive transformation, to remind us of the centrality of the, of the rise of the party system in transforming the presidency and to uh, help us understand our current course. Barbara Perry, in your great essay in the volume that you've uh, published recently, uh, the the personal presidency, that constitutional crossroads, you begin by noting that Jeffrey Tullis has argued there are two uh, constitutional presidency, first the founder's formal office, and then the informal modern presidency created by Woodrow Wilson, which some have called the personal or rhetorical presidency. And then you wonder whether it's evolved into a third constitutional presidency today. to, to give us a preview of, of, of the Trump era, has it? Is there a third era? Um, or, or would you say that uh, the, the, those two presidencies, the founders and the, and the personal presidency, describe our history? Well, before jumping into that, first of all, thank you, Jeff, for having us uh, this evening. And if ever the country needed an, a nonpartisan National Constitution Center, it is now when I do think our very Constitution is under uh, fire, and that will help you to know how I'm going to answer this question. And I also um, just want to have a little shout out to our friends in Arizona. I, I always like to hear Sandra Day O'Connor's name invoked uh, because she used to say to teacher institutes when I was teaching with the Supreme Court Historical Society at the court, she'd say to each of the teachers, democracy is not genetic. You must teach every generation about our democratic republic and about our constitution. And so uh, that's not only what we're doing this evening, but what you do every day, Jeff. And I also love your book on Brandeis as a native Louisvillian. Uh, I've always felt that I was very much uh, attuned with him. Um, so let, let me start this way. I, I just want to throw this out for our viewers and our listeners that whenever C-SPAN or others conduct a poll of scholars about who are the greatest presidents, who are great, who are near great, average, below average failures. I'm sure everyone can name off the three who come out at the top, George Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. And I do think it's interesting that when we talk about the power of the president, how it grew, uh, and, and certainly stepped away from um, some of the founders' views of the, of the presidency as an office, uh, that Aaron David Miller, the, the scholar and practitioner, says that great presidents are those who save the country 
uh, at time of great crisis and particularly existential crisis or at the founding when it wasn't sure that we'd even last beyond the founding. So George Washington falls into that category. Lincoln, obviously, for the Civil War and FDR for the Great Depression and World War II. But I would also say, uh, and to Steve's new book on, on the uh, Kennedy administration and President Kennedy in particular, that in 2010, when Gallup polled, polled Americans, not scholars, but uh, real Americans, and asked them uh, of the last, at that time, nine presidents leaving out Bush, 43, who had just left office, uh, which presidents did they approve of? John F. Kennedy came out on top to the tune of 85% of people approved of him. Now, Steve and I can have a whole conversation over an hour about why that is, but I, I refer folks to his, his book on, as I say, the Kennedy presidency. But I do think that that relates specifically then to your question posed to me, Jeff, about uh, Jeff Tullis's approach to the new presidency that I think is first the constitutional segment that we've just talked about at the founding coming up to um, obviously changes that are happening from the founding onward. But then I think Sid might agree that Teddy Roosevelt uh, starts really into this concept of a personal president and a rhetorical president, one who reaches the people directly, in part because technology is changing, travel is changing, presidents can get on trains and go throughout the expanding country. And so I think, for example, of uh, Roosevelt's speech after, Teddy Roosevelt's speech after he left office in Osawatomie, Kansas, and Sid has a whole book on Teddy Roosevelt, so I know he can hold forth on that. But just the fact that that is where Teddy Roosevelt, in a way, right, kicks off his uh, run for the presidency as a third party candidate in 2012. And then that really comes on strong, this personal presidency or rhetorical presidency with Woodrow Wilson, as you say. He is our only political scientist, Ph.D. president up to this time. And he had this view that he could reach the people directly through his speeches uh, that would be published in newspapers and, and he would go out in person and speak. And we know that that ended almost his presidency through the ruination of his health as he went around in, uh, uh, in 1919 trying to get people to support the League of Nations and the Versailles Treaty and trying to put pressure on the Senate uh, to approve that and to ratify it. Uh, he was unsuccessful and and therefore ended up stroke ridden for the last uh, year or so of his presidency. And we can someday talk about uh, his second wife, the second Mrs. Wilson, and whether she became our first uh, female president. But I also just want to say I totally agree with Steve and, and his book on the presidency and that we have, unfortunately, I think, slid over from this personal presidency and rhetorical presidency to a demagogic presidency. And so maybe it's a misnomer to call it the third form of a constitutional presidency because I think it's unconstitutional. I think having a demagogue as a president uh, is in essence uh, unconstitutional. But we have come to that in part, by, I think, because of the personal presidency, the rhetorical presidency, plus universal suffrage, sort of running now to maybe it's illogical and sad ending but also to Sid's point, you know, what are the reasons that demagogues come on the scene? Part of it is the collapse of mediating institutions. The media, the traditional media, thus their name, were mediating institutions. Now with social media, everyone is a journalist. Everyone's reporting. Everyone's commenting on the president or co communicating with the president and vice versa. We saw that that's how uh, Trump came to power. Um, so I think that I, I will just end this part of, of the answer with, the, I think, a really good definition of demagogues so that our viewers and 
those who are listening can think in terms of how they might apply this to any particular candidate or person running for office. This comes from the American Political Dictionary. A demagogue is an unscrupulous politician who seeks to win and hold office through emotional appeals to mass prejudices and passions. Half-truths, Outright lies may be used in attempts to dupe the voters. Typically, a demagogue may try to win support from one group by blaming another for its misfortunes. And that dictionary was published in 1989. Finally, I would just add, circling back to Hamilton, this is what Hamilton said about demagogues in Federalist Paper Number 1 in 1787. Of those men who have overturned the liberties of republics, the greatest number have begun their career by paying an obsequious court to the people commencing demagogues and ending tyrants. Superb, thank you so much for putting on the table that invaluable definition of demagogues as appealing to the emotions of the people and also citing Jefferson. Stephen Knotts, um, your two colleagues have endorsed your thesis, no, no, no surprise because of its persuasion. And because we're already up to the current era, let's get, let, let's, let's, let's get to it. Um, you too talk about the founders' fears of demagogues as appealing to passion rather than reason. It's that antithesis between passion and reason that is raised repeatedly in the convention and through history. And I, I guess, um, although we may go back to see how we got here, is um, you see Trump, you see President uh, Trump not as a, 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 a discontinuity, but a, a, a continuation of the trends that you identify. You say that um, Jackson and Johnson are the closest analogs to President Trump and that all of the other presidents, including Jefferson and Wilson, would have been appalled by his demagoguery. What, what is distinctive and what is historically continuous about the Trump phenomenon and what does history teach us about it? Well, I do see a golden thread of sorts from the progressive conception of the presidency, which essentially rooted the power of the presidency, not so much in the Constitution, but on the ability of the American president to develop, to develop some type of a bond with the American public, to pay attention to public opinion, but also to shape public opinion. And I think the progressives, and I would include Wilson and TR in this category, had an unwarranted faith in public opinion. And I think the American founders had a, what I believe to be a more, a deeper understanding of the dangers of the tyranny of the majority, of the dangers that demagoguery presents to any Republican form of government. And so Woodrow Wilson and TR, uh, Teddy Roosevelt are you know, miles removed from a Donald Trump. But I do think they had this kind of unbridled faith in the ability of the American public to sort of be a partner with the president. And they were somewhat, I think, dismissive of the dangers of demagoguery. So I see a direct line, a direct thread uh, from those progressive presidents. They had a different conception of the role of the federal government than Donald Trump. But they all believe that it was the president's uh, perhaps primary responsibility to take the bully pulpit and to lead the American people into the promised land. And unfortunately, I think that opened us up to abuse. And I see Donald Trump as the personification of a demagogue, of precisely the type of person 
that a Hamilton or a Madison or, or a Washington would have classified as a demagogue. So again, I see this continuity going back from Trump all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, acknowledging the policy differences between them. But they all, you know, it's, it's that presidency that Wilson and TR created that I think leads directly to the Trump presidency, which I see as something of a disaster for Republican government. Thank you for that. Sidney uh, Milkus, in your new book, The Vital Center, you talk about um, institutional changes that have created the uh, Trump presidency, including the decline of institutional constraints like the party system and the rise of presidents as crusaders for social justice movements, which you say preceded President Trump and can be identified in the Obama presidency and elsewhere. T t tell us about what happened between Wilson and TR and President Trump institutionally and in the conception of the office that brought us to where we are today? I think one thing, um, you have to talk about the New Deal. We haven't talked about the New Deal in Franklin Roosevelt, which is sort of important in the development. As Barbara said, Roosevelt is, you know, Franklin Roosevelt is the third, you know, considered in the top three, along with Washington and Lincoln. Uh, and facing the two greatest crises of the 20th century, the, the Great Depression, uh, and World War II, um, he um, leveraged those crises to consolidate the power of the modern presidency, which begins during the progressive era. But remember, there's a great reversal during the 1920s. I think Warren Harding called it a return to normalcy. The word was normality, but he, he used the word normalcy and it stuck. <laughs> it, it stuck. So, um, but Roosevelt um, consolidated what Theodore Roosevelt and Wilson had begun. And uh, extends the importance of the rhetorical presidency through the technical invention of the radio, which he uses masterfully. Uh, his uh, fireside chats were a revolution, I think, in the president's ability to uh, to uh, present himself or herself as a democratic leader because Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt was having um, friendly conversations with the American people um, and rather than giving, you know, an exalted uh, uh, rehearsed speech to the American people. So I think that was a really important development. But something that, that has to be talked about, uh, Jeff, that adds uh, to the modern presidency is its, its administrative power. Uh, and one of the things that happens as a result of the New, the new Deal in World War II is you get the development of a much greater uh, federal government which a lot, with a lot more uh, responsibilities. You get the development of the welfare state and the national security state and a full-blown executive-centered uh, administrative state. And, and that creates uh, prerogatives for the presidency, the addition of this administrative power uh, that, goes, that, that goes beyond the importance of the rhetorical presidency. So uh, the New Deal is really critical in, in creating a, a powerful presidency at home and abroad. The other key development, Jeff, and you suggested this when you said, I argue the president has become uh, the, the leader of crusades. Uh, surely that begins with uh, the New Deal, um, but it's really accentuated during the 1960s. And, and here are Barbara's discussion of Kennedy, but we'd also have to talk about Lyndon Johnson and the explosion of cultural conflicts during, uh, during the 1960s. Um, after the Civil War, uh, there, was, there was some serious uh, backsliding. We got the uh, the um, the installation of the uh, of Jim Crow, 
um, which put uh, our battles over uh, race uh, to the side for a while. But that reemerges in the 1960s during Kennedy's presidency um, with with a vengeance. Uh, and so there's this there's this explosion of cultural issues, which leads to a demand for more direct participation in the political process. And I think, Jeff, the most important thing that comes out of this, and I'm going to connect this to Trump, is the McGovern-Fraser reforms, which grow out of the anti-war uh, and civil rights movements. And they replace the National Convention, um, inst- the center, the institution of the, the National Convention, where where the presidential candidates were nominated by state and local party leaders, uh, sometimes called the gatekeepers of presidential politics, by this media-churning, plebiscitory primary and caucus system, uh, which I think really expands the kind of dangers that Steve is, is speaking about. So let's, let's imagine, let's just do a counterfactual for a second. Let's imagine if that convention system was still strong. There is just no way Donald Trump would have gotten the nomination for the presidency. He got the nomination by appealing to the base of the Republican Party directly, uh, which had kind of been teed up uh, um, to 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 take a more populist direction with, with the prop with the co- with the proper charismatic charismatic uh, leader. But if the gatekeepers were still in place, most of the establishment Republican leaders of the Republican Party were against Trump, and finally they kind of caved seeing the primordial re- demagogic relationship he had formed uh, with the Republican, the Republican base. So I think the New Deal and the 1960s are really important steps uh, towards uh, the, the kind of, um, of, of th- I don't know if we'll call it the third constitutional presidency and the fourth because the parties in the beginning of the 19th century, kind of the second, then the modern presidency is the third. Um, but I, I think uh, the kind of concerns that Barbara elaborates so well uh, really come out of the New Deal in the '60s, and, and the combination of those two, of those two developments, which reach a culmination uh, with the election uh, pre- and presidency of Donald Trump. Steve, thank you so much for identifying the those McGovern-Fraser reforms. I'll repeat them for our listeners, which you said really created the modern. Uh, primary system took the control away from party leaders and uh, ended that gatekeeping. I'll also put on the table um, um, Rick Pildes in one of our uh, in, in, in recent commentary and programs has identified um, uh, voting reform of the first-past-the-post system, including the possibility of ranked choice voting as one way of choosing more moderate candidates and we're trying to collect uh, reforms that might create a more deliberative America. And and, and you've identified two of them. Uh, Barbara, your thoughts and help us understand the relevance of the New Deal and the decline of the party system after the 1960s and the rise of new technology and the new um, modes of visual communication that you talk about in your essay that arose during Reagan. One obvious question is why it would, did it take until 2016 to have a Trump victory, um, and, and why not earlier? Right, really great question, and and that you're right. There's a bridge that that I'll fill in momentarily. Um, first of all, to uh, give a plug to Sid's newest essay with our colleague Rachel Potter, also from the politics department here, that has been produced for an upcoming conference at the Miller Center that will be online. Uh, so people can tune in uh, online 
And that will be next Thursday and Friday. So October 18th, 19th, 20th, I think 19th and 20th, particularly with panels discussing this very issue. And you get a really good sense of it in SIDS and Rachel's um, explanation of, of uh, it, it's sort of elongating SIDS uh, discussion here, but uh, is, a, is a quick study if one needs it and doesn't want to do something in book form. Um, I would also say that the first day of that will be to identify the problems with the current presidency and the modern presidency. And day two, to your point, Jeff, about people beginning to write in about what, what could we do to reform this system right now that obviously seems to be broken, uh, our entire second day will be devoted to thoughts about reforms of the presidency, the constitutional system. Um, just a really quick note about the importance uh, in days gone by of conventions. Um, I happen to be representing the Miller Center at the 2016 Republican Convention uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. And I happened to run into at an off-site luncheon that the Miller Center had sponsored for uh, a, a stage production that included the great-grandson of Theodore Roosevelt, Tweed Roosevelt, who is still with us. Um, he is based at the University of Long Island, and I just ran into him again in Washington at the Presidential Site Summit, and he is quite the, in, in I would think, embodiment, the current embodiment of Theodore Roosevelt. And he was on stage with David Eisenhower, the son-in-law of Richard Nixon, as well as the uh, grandson of Dwight David Eisenhower. And as I went to go to that event that the Miller Center was sponsoring, I saw at the table Mitch McConnell, who is from my hometown of Louisville, and he was with his wife, Elaine Chow. And it was sort of the, the old guard of the Republican Party, Orrin Hatch, Bob Dole, all seated at the lunch table. So I went up to Mitch and I always say who I am. And he says, oh, hello, how are you doing? And I didn't say anything about the fact that Trump was going to be nominated. Mitch was to speak that night, that Tuesday night to the convention. Mrs. Trump had spoken the night before and there was quite a controversy because she seemed to plagiarize from Michelle Obama. But with a hangdog expression that Mitch often has, he looked at me and again, without my prompting, he said, this guy referring to Trump, this guy could win, but I don't see how. And he was referring to the general election. So, so to Sid's point about how if this had been left up to the convention, no, he would not have been the nominee in 2016. And forever after then, Trump, uh, it, he would never be mentioned by uh, by Mitch McConnell by name. If someone said, are you are you supporting him? He'd say, I'm supporting the nominee of my party. And Mitch still says that about 2024. So let's go back to the bridge. So if we have the rhetorical presidency beginning in earnest with Woodrow Wilson out on the stump, going out around the country, speaking directly to people, uh, then we have FDR, as Sid mentioned, uh, I'll call him the mass electronic media president with his use of the newer technology of radio. And then John F. Kennedy, of course, embraces television uh, as the newer form of communicating with the people and his primetime press conferences uh, that were on average twice a month, imagine that, a president speaking to the press twice a month on primetime TV uh, was the greatest entertainment going in Washington. And I have a friend here who was in the, a very junior uh, officer in the Foreign Service who said, oh, we would always go to the to the uh, State Department. We were, we were working there. We'd go to the auditorium and we'd sit in the back and we'd listen to Kennedy. He was a quick study. He was informed and his wit was incomparable. And he was now coming in to people's living rooms. 
I then would put Reagan into the mix as what I call the celebrity president. It wasn't as though we didn't have other celebrities who had been president, but they typically were military heroes, starting with Washington. And then so many of the, obviously Jackson, but so many of the presidents after the Civil War had, Grant had been a general and a leader, and we also had very high ranking officers. So they often were celebrities in terms of being heroic military men. But in terms of a Hollywood celebrity, that that first goes to Reagan. And I think that is the direct step into the Trumpian presidency that really in part comes about through his use of social media, the newest media at that time, as well as his starring role in his reality TV show. Such a powerful and important suggestion, Reagan's use of the media and his role as the first celebrity presidency was a crucial piece of the puzzle. Stephen Knott's very eager to hear your thoughts on JFK because you have your new book out. And I also want to ask you this question. Um, uh, FDR used Hamiltonian means for the Jeffersonian ends of economic equality and expanded the administrative state. Reagan came in and explicitly invoking Jefferson, pledged to appoint Supreme Court justices who would roll back the administrative state. And indeed, our current court could be called Jeffersonian in its more limited view of federal power. At the same time, Reagan and every president since has embraced a broad view of executive power and increased use of media in a kind of celebrity way. What is the, you've thought so well about the Hamilton-Jefferson clash. What's the relation between the ongoing debate about the scope of Congressional and federal power, and the ever expanding and ever more populist presidency. Yeah, it's a terrific and tough question, Jeff. Um, I've often thought of Ronald Reagan. I, when I was at the Miller Center with Sid and Barbara, I ran the Reagan Oral History Project, and uh, Reagan, in many ways, adopted a kind of Hamiltonian conception of the presidency, at least in terms of he dismissed sort of the populist presidency of Jimmy Carter. You know, Carter had gotten rid of the Sequoia. He'd gotten rid of Hale to the chief. He was wearing cardigans in the Oval Office. He was staying in people's homes when he would travel around the country. Reagan restores a kind of imperial trapping to, trappings to the presidency, very much in a Hamiltonian style. Now, in terms of their, uh, in terms of the impact of Jeff- the Jeffersonian tradition and the Hamiltonian tradition, uh, in terms of their, you know, the views of these modern presidents regarding the Supreme Court, let's say. Uh, Clearly, the Republican Party has accepted or adopted, I would say, the sort of Jeffersonian notion that the court um, is the least democratic branch and therefore should be restrained in the way it conducts itself and should not get too far out and head of or out in front of the public or public opinion. And that's, I think, a classic Jeffersonian position. There's no doubt Jefferson's war with John Marshall, Jackson's war with John Marshall, and some of the modern Republicans, presidents, conflicts with the so-called activist courts, the Warren Court, for instance. That's very much in in the Jeffersonian mold. Hamilton, I think, obviously, was a champion of judicial independence, his essays in the Federalist Papers. I think 78 is kind of a classic in terms of laying out the power of the court and the power of judicial review. Uh, I think Hamilton would be far more comfortable, not so much with an activist court, but with a court that is willing to check public opinion, that is willing to serve as a check on that majoritarianism 
that we've been discussing. So I guess you could say to some extent, the modern Democratic Party and modern Democratic presidents embrace the kind of Hamiltonian conception of the role of the judiciary as something of a protector of minority rights and a bulwark against majority tyranny. Beautifully answered. That is exactly what I was hoping for. Thank you for for clarifying. Uh, Sidney Milk, as as we think about the broad trends we're talking about, the decline of the party system, the rise of the media, and the polarization of our country, the reforms that you and your colleagues have identified so far, in particular reinvigorating the party system, insulating the presidency, maybe from some of the more extreme forms of social media seem unrealistic to, to say the least. These, these trends won't easily go away. Um, uh, are, are, are there are there constructive, uh, is there anything that might actually be attainable uh, given the range of the structural and technological challenges we're talking about? Yeah, I have, I have to say, Jeff, that uh, I think I'm much better at diagnosing uh, diseases than coming up with <laughs> with, re- with remedies to cure. Maybe that's a political science disease. What do you think? I shouldn't ask you. It's the hardest question and no one's got yeah, a solution. Yeah. So please continue to diagnose the disease too. Yeah, I think um, my biggest uh, concern is that we've developed this presidency-centered democracy. And we're now facing the perils of presidentialism, which we've all been grappling with here uh, tonight and it's really dangerous to um to expect so much from the president i mean can a large diverse nation of um 300 million people invest so much in one person one office and still call say it's doing anything that we deserves to be called self government and, and i think what one of the developments that have has accentuated the perils of presidentialism is the re, is the Republican Party's conservatives embrace of um, of a powerful presidency, uh, and that really starts with Nixon, who begins to conceive of the modern presidency as a double edged sword, which could cut in a liberal as well as a, a, a conservative can, can cut in a conservative as well as a liberal direction. And this view departs from your hero, <laughs> William Howard Taft's view of the presidency. Uh, that the presidency should be strictly bounded by the the text of the Constitution. But I think with Nixon and then Reagan kind of uh, makes this more politically popular because uh, he gives real uh, program, ideological voice to the what Nixon called the silent majority. Uh, with uh, I think with Reagan, uh, conservatives embrace this, this powerful presidency. And rather than rolling back the state, I think, what Reagan envisions, and I think this really comes out more during Bush 43 and Trump's presidency. Um, the, uh, Reagan uh, wants the, uh, to develop the pre- uh, a more conservative presidency and change the bureaucracy. So it'll serve conservative causes. Defense is, of course, a huge, a huge issue for him. He had a messianic view uh, of the Cold War. But also he, he, he fears that traditional values, and the abortion issue is huge here, uh, are, are in decline. And the state has some responsibility uh, to uh, uh, to restore the, the importance of middle class or traditional uh, values, uh, and I think that change, where both um, both parties embrace 
the president, the presidential power, uh, is takes away the debate between Jefferson and Hamilton in a way that's very dangerous. So I think Hamiltonianism, of the popular Hamiltonianism that Steve describes, has completely displaced Jeffersonianism. The voices defending limited government out there, Jeff, are very few and frail, I fear. And we see this in the immigration battle, you know, the battles over immigration. Um, uh, conservatives have no desire to roll back the state with respect to immigration. They want to impose a much more draconian uh, position in strengthening our borders than Democrats do. So uh, I, this doesn't really answer your question about a remedy, but I think we have to think of a way that Americans have to disenthrall themselves uh, with the presidency and, and uh, reacquaint themselves with institutions like state and local government. Um, and that may be unrealistic, um, but I think that's what's got to happen if we're going to uh, move away from the kind of uh, uh, very perilous situation we're in right now in American democracy. A superb suggestion of reacquainting ourselves with state and local government, which invokes another hero of mine, Louis Brandeis. And you're surely right that uh, liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats have embraced a broad um, Hamiltonian conception of the presidency and state power. And to the degree there's any pushback there, it would be from Jeffersonians on the Supreme Court. But in that sense, we can't expect to find our salvation from the office itself. Barbara Perry, we take very seriously at the the Constitution Center our nonpartisan mandate. And by focusing on Trump as a uniquely, a unique threat to uh, the Constitution, each of you is making a historically informed argument that his brand of demagoguery is exactly what the founders feared. Hamilton feared it. And as it happened, I just found the most amazing uh, uh, quotation from Jefferson in, in, in the letter to Madison on the Constitution. He says that he most fears that imagine someday a demagogic president may lose re-election by just a few votes and refuse to leave office and seek the support of the states that had voted against him to to, to entrench himself. He, he's kind of envisioning um, minority uh, support demagoguery. Help us understand, what does your study of history convince you of the unique dangers of a Trump presidency to the constitutional system, to our institutions, and to the republic? You're right to say that we've had demagogues before. It's not as though Trump was the only demagogue ever to appear in American politics. And Steve pointed out, I think quite correctly, that you could point to Jackson uh, as one and probably Andrew Johnson. Um, We had Huey Long. We had Father Coughlin, the radio priest. We had Joe McCarthy in the 1950s. But I would point out that none of those three ever became president of the United States. And so a question that's been fluttering around in in my mind over this hour uh, is, is it an irony, I ask all of you, is it an irony then that really a tyranny of minority helped to put Trump in office? That is the very institution of our constitution that the founders hoped would check the possibility of a demagogue becoming president because as Steve pointed out, they had real concerns about the people. And I always say, isn't it interesting that they had concerns about the people when the only people who could vote at the federal level during the time 
of their lives would be white male property owners. And yet they still put in the check of the electoral college. Um, I, I do wonder if they ever had a conceptualization that we would end up with universal suffrage. I can't imagine that they would in, have imagined it the way we know it now. So isn't it a tyranny, uh, a, a, an irony that a tyranny of the minority, that is that Hillary Clinton in 2016 got what, 3 million more votes almost uh, more than Trump, but that because of the oddity of the electoral college, uh, and the shift of about 70,000 votes over three states caused Trump to win the presidency. So I do think that we need to think about that if we're talking about reforms. I realize how difficult it would be to <laughs> abolish the Electoral College. And I recognize that uh, people who talk about it and, and, uh, and are against reforming it and against abolishing it say, oh, well, then you would just have California and New York. Uh, and Texas choosing the president. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I would I would just say this, that our constitutional system, as the founders hoped it would function, did not work in 2016, and it was about not to work uh, in 2020 on January the 6th of 2021. And when I look back at, let's just take Al Gore in 2000. Uh, first of all, Bush v. Gore that gets all the way to the Supreme Court in two different cases and two different oral arguments and is decided, depending on how one reads the final opinion, seven to two or five to four in favor of George W. Bush winning, in effect, um, by what, two electoral votes and about, we think about 300 votes in Florida. And yet, as soon as the court revealed its decision in mid-December, uh, it, it late at night, Al Gore, I think by the next day, was on television uh, saying to the American people, of course, I would have liked this to work out another way, but it didn't. And so, of course, George W. Bush will be our next president. And then as vice president of the United States, Al Gore had to suffer the indignity of counting the electoral votes and proclaiming George W. Bush's opponent as the winner. So by having a celebrity president in Donald Trump, who had never been in government, who had really not been in politics even, who had never served in the military, you get someone who does not appreciate the constitutional guardrails of our system. And that to me is the real danger that I think people hoped that if Biden would win, that he would not only right the ship of state that was listing so badly after January 6, 2021, uh, but that the demagoguery of, of at least Donald Trump as a candidate would perhaps disappear. And we see that the opposite is happening. So, such a, a um, important reminder of the dangers of minority tyranny and demagogues produced by minorities. As, as Stephen Knotts, what about that danger? The I'll just read the Jefferson quote because it really struck me. It's, I'm sure, familiar to uh, many of you, if once elected and at a second or third election outvoted by one or two votes, he will pretend false votes, foul play, hold possession of the reins of government and be supported by the states voting for him. The only pre preventive against an unscrupulous minority demagogue, said Jefferson, is to limit the president to a single term so he can't try to run again and entrench himself. Um, what is a minority demagogue and does, does that change your definition? And what are the uh, defenses against it? Uh, it's a very, it's a very interesting point, and uh, one that I've had to wrestle with because, as Barbara and you have pointed out, President Trump lost the popular vote. We've had a number of popular vote losers 
who won the presidency due to the Electoral College. Now, my argument, and by the way, there's probably three people in the United States who would agree with me on this, is that the original Electoral College had some merit to it. Uh, you and I would go and vote for the state level, and those representatives that you and I chose would in turn select electors every four years. And hopefully, and the, the founders weren't naive about this. They knew enlightened statesmen would not always be at the helm. But hopefully those electors would pick somebody of uh, stature and somebody with the experience needed to be the nation's chief executive. We got we gutted that with the 12th Amendment. And basically what we've got today is the worst of both worlds. We have the remnants of this old electoral college, but it's basically, for the most part, a rubber stamp of the popular vote in each state. So to, to some extent, I don't think we can necessarily blame the architects of the original Electoral College for some of the failures that occurred most recently, arguably in 2016. I, If I could just go back, you asked Sid a question about a potential cure. And I think something that Sid said earlier offers at least a partial, a glimmer of hope. And that would be to restore some of the power given to the political parties that they possessed in the 19th century to select presidential nominees. Those people served as the gatekeepers. And we don't have, as Sid mentioned, we don't have any gatekeepers anymore. If you have enough money and enough public visibility, you can throw your hat in the ring and run for president. That would not have happened in the 19th century. Now, I grant you the old system where the party leaders in the smoke-filled room had a tendency at times to pick certain mediocrities. You know, there's not a lot of people out there saying Rutherford B. Hayes or Chester Arthur should be on Mount Rushmore. But the fact is that those mediocrities, so-called mediocrities, did not do harm. They did not damage the office of the presidency. They were not threats to the Constitution. Um, and I would take a Benjamin Harrison over a Donald Trump any day. So I do think one answer is to go back to that old system, elements of that older system, where people who know who the talented individuals are, who the individuals that might have uh, psychological problems or drinking problems or whatever, character issues, they would be able to exclude these folks from being nominated by a major political party. As the way things stand now, there are no guardrails left, and that's a dangerous situation. Um, it is indeed, and that's a, a powerful suggestion of the need for resurrecting gatekeepers like restoring power to the parties. Um, uh, Sidney Milkes, this will be last thoughts because we, we always end on time. And uh, no need to propose more solutions because they may not be at all obvious, but given your deep knowledge of the history of the presidency. Are, are we at a inflection point in American history akin to the election of 1800 or the Civil War and or not? And, and, and what does the history of the presidency teach you about our current challenges? Mm. That's, well, that's a tough last question. <laughs> what the heck? Uh, you sure we can't go over time? <laughs> well, we can, because I want to hear. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, when I... Um, give lectures on the current situation, you know, I kind of lay out the dangers that we're facing, seemingly intractable, as you say, 
to propose solutions almost seems, seems, seems naive. I do, I do agree with Steve that if we could put an, an ingredient of peer review back into our presidential selection process, which the Electoral College did not provide that kind of filter, but parties did, that would help. And that's not perhaps out of the question. But uh, when I give the lecture about how dangerous things are, I point out um, that all of our major uh, transformations, every major development in American democracy um, occurred during periods of tremendous conflict and, and partisan polarization. And during these periods, the American political system is disrupted uh, but we embrace a redefinition of the social contract, uh, which connects uh, a new generation of Americans in, uh, in, for their time to the Declaration and the Constitution. I think the last time that so clearly happened uh, was the New Deal, with the New Deal. Uh, it hasn't happened since. And since the 1960s, Jeff, we've been an intractable, uh, intractably divided. I think in part because the fundamental question uh, emerges is what does it mean to be an American with civil rights questions and, and, and immigration. Um, and that requires a reckoning with some very difficult issues that we only faced previously in our history in the Civil War, and that led to a civil war. And a lot of people refer to our current situation as the Cold Civil War. So I, I think um, if we're going to do something about this intractable divide, uh, I think one of the things that distinguishes contemporary politics from these previous um, great transformations in American politics is we had some intermediary institutions <laughs> um, that really provided a structure for the rebuilding of consensus in American politics. And a lot of those have been greatly weakened. We've talked about the parties. We haven't talked about Congress and what's happening with Congress. What, um you know, uh, the rule of law is really, this is, I'm pretty, I don't have to tell you this, Jeff, the rule of law is central to Republican government. And we do things administratively now. Um, we don't really pass laws in the way we did in, in previous periods of American history. So you think about the Civil War with the Civil War amendments. You think about the New Deal with the enactment of major pieces of legislation like Social Security. How, how are we going to move in that direction under the current conditions of American politics. So I really think we have to think about strengthening the intermediary institutions that in our past have allowed us to kind of confront these crises in a way that led to some kind of restored consensus. <clears throat> Presently, our politics is unfiltered and, our, and the conflict between the tribes in America is direct, conf direct confrontation. Uh, and, and so, I don't, I, I, you know, we don't have time to talk about rebuilding all our intermediary institutions. Um, but, but I think, you know, for all the controversy of the abortion decision, restoring, restoring that decision back to the states has led to some really interesting developments that are worth talking about. So something like that, a return to appreciation of some of these intermediary institutions, I think is necessary to move us from our current crisis to a new consensus in American politics, a new understanding. Of American democracy. That's so interesting, and that your proposal to strengthen intermediary institutions connects with your earlier suggestion to restore power to the states and local government to, to federalism as, as another uh, principle, and the two and the two can go hand in hand. Barbara Perry, last word in this superb discussion is to you: What lessons can our uh, we the people friends learn? From history about our current vexations? 
So in addition to the rhetorical presidency and the constitutional presidency and what we have said is perhaps the demagogic presidency, I like Steve's idea. I think we could perhaps develop a Hippocratic presidency. First, do no harm. (laughs) So that would be my one last thought. And as the only woman on the panel, I do have to say that the gatekeepers before the 60s reforms at the conventions tended to be white men. And so if we're going to go back to the gatekeeper system, we have to figure out a way for the gatekeepers to be diverse uh, across the board in all the meanings of that word. You're here. Wonderfully said. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Stephen Knott, Sidney Milkis, and Barbara Perry for a magnificent discussion of the crucial question of the president and the Constitution. Uh, I, and thank you, uh, National Constitution Center friends, for taking an hour out of your evenings to learn from these three great scholars, uh, Barbara, Stephen, and uh, Sidney. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Tanea Tauber, and Bill Pollack. It was engineered by David Stotts and Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Samson Mastashare, Cooper Smith, and Yara Durese. The program was presented in partnership with the Center for Constitutional Design at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. It was streamed live on October 11th, 2023. Check out the full lineup of thrilling town hall programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. Recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And if you like the episode, please subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. That's the live feed of our wonderful town hall programs. Always remember, friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of lifelong learners from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast, $5, $10 or more at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.